Good afternoon, Risen Hope. It is wonderful for Sam and I to be back here. We were walking across the parking lot and it was a little surreal because I, I took that walk so many times and it's like, oh wait, yeah, this is very familiar, but wait, we're not here anymore. Just, but it's, it's so amazing to, to see you all again, to be among you, to be greeting friends again. Uh, you have a very special place in my heart. Um, and we are delighted to be partnering with Risen Hope as we plant Grace Family Church. So I bring you greetings from the saints at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. Uh, we speak of you guys often. They know about my relationship with you and their relationship with you. And the, the joy we share together as we uh, labor side by side for the cause of the gospel. Uh, I wanted to give you a quick update on how the work back home is going. So we started Sunday services in January of this year, and it has been wonderful from day one. God has been with us, and every gathering is marked by joy uh, as we do what you do, as we sing about Jesus, as we lift up prayers to the Father, as we anticipate the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst, as we welcome each other in the name of Jesus and give our attention to the preaching of God's Word. Uh, but rather than just talk about what God has been doing, I'd like you to see a bit of it. This video that you're going to see was done by a young man named Omari, who first visited our church at Easter. Now, when he visited, he had no plans of sticking around, but God clearly had other plans. And quite spontaneously, he has taken on the task of documenting our journey. So he takes a lot of photos, and he's been doing video. He's been doing some courses in social media and, and, and production. And so he's just practicing and doing a lot of stuff for our own church. Uh, so here's a look at Grace Family Church. So I'll sit and watch it with you. Yeah, I'm really happy that you had that opportunity to catch a glimpse of Grace Family Church. As you can see from seeing it, that would be hard to describe. When I try to describe to people where we meet, it's a little hard for me to help them to visualize it. But that's where we meet. It has been wonderful. Um, and you guys are already a part of that work through your investment in me and Samora and in our kids, Maya, Dominic, and Jacob Khalil. Uh, and through your continued friendship and support. We are delighted by what God is doing in our midst as he gathers a people. On November 17th, we're actually anticipating welcoming our first members, including me and Sam. We're still members of Risen Hope, by the way. Uh, so that's actually when we'll officially stop being members of this church on November 17th. I had the distinct pleasure some months ago of introducing Sovereign Grace's first quarter missions video, which featured this church, Risen Hope, as we played it for Grace Family Church on a Sunday morning. That video celebrated the particular work that God is doing in your midst uh, by his power through the gospel. I was glad that I did not need the video to know about that work because Sam and I have seen what God is doing here face to face and we've been able to be a part of that for a while. So as we watched, I could rejoice wholeheartedly with you all, much like the Apostle Paul does in the passage we're going to look at today. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 3 to 6 of that chapter, and then verses 2 to 6 of chapter 4, a bit later down in the message. Here, Paul rejoices in what the gospel is doing in the life of a young church, a church that he had yet to visit but had heard much about. He wants them to see what God is doing in their midst so that their joy would be full. He wants him to understand that God is also at work through the gospel all over the world. And Paul is calling them to partner 
with him in his mission and to thoughtfully and lovingly engage with those around them with the good news about Jesus. As we reflect on these verses in Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 4, here's what we'll be on the lookout for. How does Colossians shape our vision for missions? How does this letter call us to celebrate or participate in the work of the gospel? Let me read for you then from Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. This is God's precious word that has given us life and that he uses to shape our lives. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Let's pray. Lord, as we dig into your word, please open our eyes to see it and to understand it. Please shape our hearts by your word, Lord. Uh, we, we, we have been given life by your word. Our life is sustained by your word, and we are sanctified by your word. So please be pleased to continue to do that in our midst today. We ask in Jesus' name. So what I want to do for you is to unpack these verses for a few minutes, and then we'll jump over to chapter 4 and read a few verses there and do the same thing. So let's start here under the heading, Joy in the Work of the Gospel. Joy in the Work of the Gospel. There's a lot going on in these short verses. My goal today isn't to examine all the details. Instead, what I want to help you to see is the dynamics, to see how God is at work among the saints to whom the Apostle Paul is writing. I especially want to help you to feel the Apostle's joy in the work of the gospel so that this, that same joy will be yours. Paul was writing to a young church that he had heard about from a close ministry associate named Epaphras. Epaphras was originally from Colossae, and he had preached the gospel back in his hometown, and a church was born out of that. He had now rejoined Paul, and he was just gushing about these saints and about what God was doing back in Colossae. And now Paul, in writing to these people who are only known to him by reputation, is himself gushing. Listen to what he says. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, the fact that Paul did not know the people he was writing to personally makes these introductory words particularly striking and surprising. If Paul was a politician, we probably wouldn't be surprised. Unfortunately, we've become accustomed to the fact that most politicians will flatter with words to endear themselves to people. They can sound like they're interested in you and that they care about you and what's happening with you uh, when they're only interested or mostly interested in themselves. But Paul is not trying to endear himself to this young church with fabricated words. His joy over what God is doing among them is the real deal. It overflows into constant prayers of thanksgiving. And why is Paul so grateful and joyful? The gospel was bearing fruit in Colossae. Faith, love, and hope were springing up in the lives of these saints. They had trusted in Jesus. They were demonstrating love for one another and for all the people around them and for all the saints in churches they were connected to. 
and their faith and love was growing from the life-giving hope of the gospel, the confident assurance that God had qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Their future was secure. And that was freeing their hearts not to live for themselves, not to spend themselves trying to get theirs now, but to pour out their lives for each other and for those around them. And the stories of how they were evidencing faith and hope and love had reached Paul, and he was delighted, and he was grateful. If you are standing right under one of those huge and amazing murals that have been painted on the sides of buildings in downtown Philly, you could examine the details of each brushstroke or, or, or look at the story being told in one, one small section of an image. But what you'd probably miss at that proximity, being so close to the mural, is the impact of the big picture, the big story being told. But if you stood sufficiently far away, you'd notice that all the scenes fit together in some way, and you'd begin to discern a theme that pulls the whole thing together. This passage is actually like one of those murals. And the theme that emerges when you view it as a whole is the potency of the gospel. As Paul rejoices in the dramatic changes that are happening in this local church, he highlights the power and the agency of the gospel as the source of those effects. God is at work among them through the message that Epaphras preached to them, a message which they heard, understood, and believed. And Paul is writing to them because he wants, to, he wants them to put down deep roots into the gospel, into the bedrock of the gospel, and to live their whole lives by faith in Jesus. So here, at the start of the letter, he begins to give them reasons to treasure and to trust the gospel. They needed to know that the simple and unvarnished message that Epaphras had taught them was powerfully at work in their lives and all around the world. He wanted them to know that they were a part of something huge. This gospel was going global and was getting work done. And he wanted them to understand the nature of the gospel. It constantly bears fruits, as if by its own intrinsic power. It doesn't just sit there. It gets stuff done. Paul's whole life had been turned upside down and repurposed entirely by the power of the gospel. And as he traveled and preached, he was an eyewitness to what the gospel was doing from Jerusalem to Rome. And it wasn't running out of energy. It wasn't a fad that was fizzling out. It was increasing. It was bearing fruit. I want this passage to bear fruit in our hearts today, especially as you seek to grow as a community church that is engaged in global mission. You see, this simple introduction here in Colossians 1 has a power to transform us. So to help you to grab hold of that power, I'm going to make an attempt to distill these truths down to an equation. And this is it. Gospel joy plus gospel confidence leads to gospel passion. Let me say it again for you, and maybe you want to say it so you can retain it. Gospel joy plus gospel confidence leads to gospel passion. What I mean by gospel joy is our perceiving and rejoicing in what God is doing through the good news of Jesus in our lives, in our local church, 
and all around the world as we have opportunity to hear about that. We had that opportunity already this afternoon. We got to hear from Fred about what's going on in his ministry. Uh, we got to hear from David about Covenant Mercies and just a tremendous work that you all are already participating in. That's what we see Paul doing in these verses. He's lifting up joyful prayers to God for these believers, and he wants them to know that he's doing that. He wants them to see themselves the way he sees them, the way that God sees them. What I mean by gospel confidence is understanding that the almighty God is committed to changing people's lives through the feeble-seeming, foolish-seeming message of Jesus Christ crucified. It's being sure that what God is doing among you is not a fluke. It's not the result of a fortuitous combination of people and timing. It's not you and your dedication. It is God at work through the gospel. And as Paul says in this passage, that same gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world just as it does among you. Through it, God saves and transforms the lives of people across many cultures that make up this community. Paul trumpets that confidence in 1 Corinthians 1, 23-25. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. That gospel joy in combination with that gospel confidence leads to gospel passion. A growing excitement about an engagement with what God is doing in your church and community and throughout the world through the good news about Jesus. That passion looks like you personally pursuing greater depth of knowledge and understanding of the gospel. It looks like us together doing what Paul instructs in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And it looks like what Paul speaks to in chapter 4, joining in the work of the gospel in the world and in our community, which we'll turn our attention to in the next few minutes. But first... I have a few questions for you. Are you rejoicing in what God is doing among you? I know that many of you are. I hear that when I speak to Alex and, and to Tim. Uh, I, I hear that when I speak to many of our friends here in Risen Hope. And I want to encourage you to do that all the more. You see, it's easy to see what's broken in your local church. Risen Hope is still a pretty young church, and that can be exciting. And we're certainly experiencing at home the joy that often features in a brand new church. But after a while, the effervescence starts to wear off. You know, you, you start to, to that, that new church smell starts to fade. You know? And the work can become burdensome. And they're heartbreaking situations and relationships get hard. And you lose friends, you lose people along the way. And Jesus told us it would be like that so that we wouldn't get discouraged. But what will serve us is to train our eyes to see what God is doing in our local church. Ask others what is encouraging them. Share with them what's encouraging you. When you pray together, be deliberate and thank God for what he's doing in your community. Those are some of the ways we, we train ourselves to see and rejoice in what God is doing. 
Another question is, do we have confidence in the power of the gospel to bear fruit in our lives and in the lives of others? Or is your confidence waning after years of sharing with that friend or relative and seeing no results? Or years of parenting with the gospel and the distance between you and your child just seems to grow more and more? Or in the midst of your own struggle to grow and change? Take a look again at what God is telling us through this passage. The faith that you have in Christ and you see in others in this community, however feeble it seems to you, and the love you express for each other and for me and for other believers uh, and, and the world around you, even though it seems to wax and wane, are the fruit of the gospel. And that gospel is at work in all of the world. And that's meant to encourage us to hold on to our confidence in the gospel and to pursue it with greater zeal. Missions is not just motivated by feeling the need that others have to hear the good news about Jesus and to experience his transforming power. Missions is motivated by joy in the work of the gospel that you are seeing right where you are. The encouragement and the excitement you feel as God works among you here Evidenced by faith and hope and love is the same reason you have to be encouraged and excited about and engaged in global missions. Missions is motivated by the confidence we have that God's word will not return to him void, but will accomplish that for which he sent it. Right here in Drexel Hill, that it's going to do that. And where I am in Caymanas Estate and in every city and town around the world where God has raised up a gospel witness. Passionate commitment to missions is motivated by gospel joy and gospel confidence. I love risen hope, but I need to tell you guys that you're not that special. What is special is the gospel that is at work in your hearts. What is amazing is the grace of God in truth that has come to you. By God's design and will, he's doing very special things among you, and we rejoice in that. These verses have called us to joy in the work of the gospel, a joy which is accentuated by and anchored in confidence in the gospel. Gospel passion that is the fruit of this joy and confidence is what Paul calls for as he wraps up this letter in chapter 4. Let's consider his instructions under this heading, join in the work of the gospel. Join in the work of the gospel. Look with me then at Colossians chapter 4. Verses 2 to 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As Paul calls this young church to join in the work of the gospel, he calls them explicitly to prayer and to participation. These verses call this church to look outward from their own local community to the evangelistic work that Paul is involved in and to their relationships with non-Christians around them. Recall that we saw in chapter 1 how Paul was, play, was, was praying regularly for these believers, giving thanks to God for them, and then going on in the verses that follow, uh, 
we, we would read how he's going to pray for their faith to grow. Now he's calling them to a lifestyle of consistent petitionary prayer. And the watchfulness he calls them to in prayer is very connected to the verses we looked at in chapter 1. It's an awareness of what God is doing among them. A giving thanks as God answers prayers. And it's an awareness that with each passing day, the hope that they have of Jesus' return and the restoration and reconciliation of all things is drawing closer and closer. But he goes beyond a general encouragement to pray, to specifically ask that they pray for him in his gospel mission. When it comes to the global advance of the gospel, it is impossible to overemphasize the importance of prayer. As Peter Bryan puts it, when they interceded for him, it was not the completing of some formality, but an actual cooperating with him, an assisting of him in prayer. I think I appreciate this passage much more now that we've started the work back home in Jamaica. I appreciate your prayers much more now. A number of people who are members here in Risen Hope uh, are on uh, a mailing list that we have, and they receive updates from us probably about every six weeks. I always appreciate the replies and the encouragement I get from people. It matters so much to us to know that you are praying for us. Our work can be quite lonely in some respects. It's not that we have no relationship with other churches in Jamaica. It's more that very few churches share our values and our priorities. So while people at home will ask us from time to time, how's it going, what's going on with the church plant, they're not invested in what God has called us to do. But you are. You believe in what we are doing and in how we're called to do it. And I can't tell you how much the knowledge of your support and your prayers means to us as we labor. It strengthens us and sustains us. Every time I receive an email, I feel like I'm being strengthened. And if you want to get our updates, uh, and, uh, these prayer requests via email, you can sign up at the table that's at the back there. We have a table with a few things there. Um, and if you want to know how you can support us, you can also get that information at our table. The amazing thing about how God has designed the advance of the gospel to work is that you can participate meaningfully in that through prayer. So you can be, and you guys already are working alongside us in Jamaica. What you're doing in Global Missions Ministry is wonderful and valuable. It's worth the sacrifices of time and energy. And, and through the relationships that we have in our denomination, Sovereign Grace, you can participate in, wor in the work in Bolivia. Uh, I'm hearing that next week you'll hear from my dear friend, David Del Castillo. Uh, you can participate in work in Australia and Ethiopia and Croatia and Thailand and South Korea. I haven't been a part of Sovereign Grace for, for a long time, but I suspect that there has not been a more exciting time in our family of churches in terms of our connection to the work of the gospel that's going on all around the world. It's just exploding. It's amazing the people who want to be connected to us, uh, the people who are asking, can we join Sovereign Grace? Can Sovereign Grace partner with us? So it's a really exciting time. And what this passage teaches us is to pray is, is, is that we, we are to be praying for God to open a door for the Word. As we do the work of planting Grace Family Church, there are a lot of needs that arise. From week to week, different things happen. 
And our Heavenly Father continues to demonstrate his care for us in all of the details of our lives. But there is never a greater need than to pray in the way this passage teaches us. This is how we need you to pray for us as we seek to do the gospel work that we are called to. This is how we need to be praying for the, the churches in our family of churches. As one commentator says, it is the word that must be given entrance because it is the word that has the power to transform human beings. That's gospel confidence right there. And that confidence leads to our making the progress of the gospel a priority in prayer. Now, in verses 5 and 6, Paul turns his attention to the mission these believers are called to together as a local church in the town in which they live. That reference to outsiders in verse 5 is not snubbing non-Christians or putting them down in any way. It would have reminded these believers that they too were once outsiders. It should remind us of that fact. Earlier in this letter, in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, we're taught, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Many of the people around you, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates, are far from God. They're living in hostility towards him, whether they know it or not, and they're doing what displeases him. And we were just like them until God intervened in our lives through the gospel. We need to remember that. We need, we need the undeserved mercy that we have received to continue to massage and shape our hearts and soften our hearts to those around us. Because sometimes those around us are not pleasant to live with. Sometimes they make our lives miserable. Sometimes you just can't figure out why this person is so difficult. Yet we're called to love them with the gospel. These verses are meant to shape how you approach the mission that you are called to as a local church right here in Drexel Hill. We're called in these verses to walk with wisdom and to speak with grace. You see, we're not just called to deliver content, to drop a letter or a message. We're called to represent the character of Jesus to those around us. This command to walk in wisdom is a call to bring the character of Christ to bear in our relationships with those who do not know him. It's a call to live our lives in tactful, strategic, and winsome ways that display the beauty of God's grace at work in us. And for people far from God to experience that grace as it overflows to them in compassion and kindness and humility and patience and forgiveness. It's a call to embody the gospel and to do so for the benefit of those who have not put their trust in Jesus yet. In one sense, you can think of instructions for godly living like a musical score. You can play the right notes, but that doesn't mean that anyone is going to necessarily enjoy the song. Wisdom is the skill to play it beautifully, with the right timing and with the right accents that bring out the nuances of the composition. That's why I think Jeff Vanderstelt, in his book Gospel Fluency, hits the nail on the head when he says, Wisdom is knowledge applied so that we do the right thing at the right time with the right motive in the right way. 
And as a local church, walking in wisdom involves sharing about and understanding the gifts and the passions that God has placed in the hearts of other members here and learning to work together to employ those gifts and to express those passions. Because we can accomplish so much more together as local churches in mission than we can on our own. I love the way that we saw how you do that here at Risen Hope through ministries like Women's Space and Amnion and the prison ministry and the bridge. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4 with me. It says, let your speech always be gracious. As believers, our speech should be full of grace. And there's nothing more gracious than the gospel. Most of these Colossian believers were not called to a career in gospel proclamation. That's true of the vast majority of you also. But we are called to share the good news of Jesus with others. And as Mark Maynell observes, if the message is one of grace, then the way it is communicated must be characterized by graciousness. We are called to be streams of refreshment in a parched world. We interact with a lot of people who may have had very few life-giving conversations each day with security guards, receptionists, restaurant workers, customer service representatives. As I've learned in my life to bless people with my speech as I do business day to day, to acknowledge their presence and to ask how they are doing and to display love and to take opportunities to get to know them, I found that it is clear that I leave people in a better state than the one in which I found them. The blessing I've become to them shows on their faces again when I see them for a second or third time. That's the effect that we are called to have on the world around us. And living this way opens up opportunities for the gospel. Our speech reveals the things that captivate and dominate us. If lust captivates us, it will come out in our conversation. If anger dominates our hearts, it will be heard in our words. So, this is, so, so what I'm talking about is not simply self-censorship here. God transforms our speech by transforming our hearts. You don't actually need to be born again to censor yourself. But hearts and imaginations that are captivated by and filled with the grace of God will delight in the self-control that reflects Jesus and will overflow with thanksgiving that is forced, that is not forced, sorry, but is natural. And our speech should be seasoned with salt. When we talk about Jesus, it shouldn't sound like we scooped something out of a can and kind of slapped it down on a plate and just put it in front of somebody. It should come across much more like a lovingly prepared home-cooked meal. But that will only be true if day after day our own appetite for Jesus is being satisfied as we are discovering new delights in him. I love how H.B. Charles illustrates this for preachers in particular, and it should characterize all of us as we speak of Jesus. He says we should preach like satisfied customers. There's no disconnect between the work you are called to in your community here in Drexel Hill and the global advance of the gospel that this passage calls us to pray for. In both of these areas, we put the love of our Savior on display. In both, we announce the good news that God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ and that people can be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus. Paul's letter to the Colossians shapes our vision for missions by helping us to see how our joy in the work of the gospel that we've experienced 
should lead to our joining in the work of the gospel, both in our local community and around the world. As believers, we are tremendously privileged. We, we have experienced God's reconciling work in Christ, and we have the privilege of participating in that work extending to others. In Romans 15, 12, as Paul speaks of the mission he was given to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, he quotes from Isaiah 11 about the certainty of the fruitfulness of the gospel. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. That is the hope we stand on as we work together side by side for the cause of the gospel. So let's keep doing together what Jesus has called us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, firstly, that you have caused us to be born again by your living word, uh, so that our eyes have been opened to the wonder of Christ, uh, to the majesty of you. You have given us new life in you. We thank you, Lord, that by your plan, by your design, we have the opportunity to participate in the work of the good news of Jesus reaching others, reaching those who are immediately around us, reaching friends and co-workers and neighbors, uh, and reaching people on the other side of the world. Thank you, Lord, for the many opportunities we have as the churches in Sovereign Grace to participate in, in works very far from where we are and to feel connected to them through the relationships you've given us. Please, Lord, bless the work of the gospel. And not just the work we are personally involved in, but the work that many people in many places are involved in. Uh, give strength to those on the front lines of this work. Help us, Lord, to be steadfast in prayer uh, for the advance of the gospel. Help us, Lord, uh, to, to have hearts which are willing uh, to pour our resources into the work of the gospel and cause that many people will come to faith in Christ for the sake of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.